thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and tonight we are in uh, chapter 15, uh, chapter 16. Last week we covered the first five bowls of wrath. Uh, we've seen through the structure of the book of Revelation that we moved from the warnings and the lessons that the Lord gave us in the letters into the partial punishments which He gave us in the trumpets, and the purpose was to, number one, strengthen the believers and remind them of their duties towards the Lord, their faithfulness, their perseverance. And number two, to show the unbelievers what might happen to them if they were to persist in their unbelief. And now we move into the last part of that covenantal lawsuit that the Lord initiated at the beginning of the book with the bowls of wrath. And as I reminded you last time, we need to keep in mind that the wrath of God is not simply for punishment. As I said to you last time, imagine what would have happened had the Lord, if the Lord did not punish, did not put an end to the persecution that was stemming from the Temple of Jerusalem and to the persecution that was coming from Rome. The church would not have been able to flourish and so many souls throughout the world would have been lost. So we cannot look at the wrath of God purely in the context of its exercise. We have to see it in the context of the history of all of humanity. And that is very important. The other important element we want to keep in mind is that while the Lord is very, very keen on the, sav- on the salvation of the world, He's even keener on the protection and the sanctity of His church. Because she is his bride, right? So we need to keep those two elements in mind. And that should spur us to realize that unless we truly love the church, the bride of Christ, we don't have a claim to love Jesus. I can't love Jesus and not love his church. It just doesn't work. Surely I can have emotions and I can have a desire to love Him and I can, have, I can be sincere and I can be wanting to. I can have all those things. That's wonderful. But objectively speaking, if I look at my love as an object seen from outside, it makes no sense. It'd be like going to Jesus and saying, Lord, I love you, but let's keep your church outside the equation. The church you died for, we don't need her. It's just you and me. Right? Makes no sense, right? 
So, um, I'm hoping that through the studies of the book of Revelation, one of the things that is happening for all of us is a deeper devotion to the church and an appreciation of the holiness of the church. That is key. So tonight we're going to look at the two last trumpets, the sixth and the seventh. Uh, Before we do so, let's again remind ourselves what we've seen last time with the first five trumpets. As we've... uh, Bowls, I'm sorry. Bowls. I've been saying trumpets for so long. Um, Thank you. Bowls. Those bowls or chalices, uh, the first five chalices or bowls were about nature, right? They've touched upon all the natural elements that have an impact on the economy of the world. So that effectively God is punishing the world by that which the world loves most. And that is a a trademark of the way God deals with all of us. We get punished by that for which we we have most the greatest attachment to. Uh, A a very good example is the wife of Saul. uh, not Saul, I'm sorry, uh, Lot, the wife, Lot's wife. If you recall from the history of Genesis, they came out of uh, Sodom, and the angel said, do not turn around, do not look back. And as they were climbing and running away, Lot, his two daughters, and his wife, she turned around and looked back. And she was punished by that for which she had most attachment. To look back is to long for, to desire, right? To miss, that's what it means. And when the Lord said, no one is worthy, anyone who puts his hand to the, um, to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. What he means is that if you start working in a church and you turn around and you're longing for your previous life, you're not worthy of me. All right? So that's, that's the meaning of this looking back. So the men are therefore, in the first five uh, bowls, they are punished unremittingly through that which they love most. And the other important thing that we saw is that as those punishments coming through, we hear the angel of water that is glorifying God, magnifying Him for His justice. Just are thou in these thy thy judgments, thou who art and wast, O Holy One. And God is seen to be holy because of the justice He's now administering to the world. And I reminded you of this last time. God is holy not because He's merciful. He's holy because He is just. Now, as I said, the mercy of God is... We we appreciate God's mercy when we really appreciate His justice. Because it is far more powerful for a man who is just to be merciful than for one who is lenient to be merciful. But I would also argue with you that anyone who is lenient in his justice cannot be truly merciful. There's no mercy without justice. Okay? Uh, if, you, if you're wondering about that, think about it for a second. If you've been mugged, if you've been mugged, you've been beaten and somebody stole something away from you, and you went to see the judge, and the one who did that is standing in front of the judge, and the judge shows mercy and let this guy go, would you call that mercy? All right? There's no mercy without justice. Let's remind, let, let's, let's remind ourselves of this. There's no mercy without justice. Okay? And then the altar also, Yea, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are thy judgments. So those are the saints 
who in the beginning of the book were crying for God's justice. How long, O oh Lord, till you avenge our blood? How long? Right? And then now they're seeing happening and they're giving glory to God. And I put it out to you that sometimes we Catholics tend to be a little bit sort of, you know, we bend the back and then we, we're, we're, we're always apologizing for almost anything we do as Catholics. And we just cannot be happy for anything that God would do to spur out the, the church. Right? And then that, that's not, that's not the, the proper attitude. When God gives justice, we should rejoice. Right? Not because we won, but because God shows forth His love. And who He is, His attribute, His glory, His holiness. We rejoice in God when we see His acts. Moses rejoiced when he saw what happened. Right? Our Lady in her, in her, in her uh, Magnificat, says, and he sends the rich empty-handed. Right? And she was rejoicing over that. My heart rejoices. She had no qualms saying, and he sent the riches empty-handed. Okay? So the need, we need to have a saner attitude than, we, than the sort of, uh, you know, uh, almost defeatist attitude we have these days. We, we're not allowed to rejoice over anything. This is a little bit of a... Um, extreme pietism in, 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 a, in a sense, in, in a wrong term, not in the proper virtue of piety, uh, which is the love of, uh, of, uh, of religion. And as a result of all of that, uh, all the, those things that happen, uh, in particular the fifth uh, angel pouring his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was in darkness, the result is that men who love earth cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and did not repent of their deeds. So the punishment that was brought upon these men is in a sense terminal. There, are, there is no conversion out of it. So it is not true that all sufferings and all punishments that God brings forth will always bring uh, um, conversion. It's not going to happen. It didn't happen with, 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 with uh, Sodom. Right? That punishment that God brought upon Sodom was terminal. And we need to realize that for us and for the world. The world keep on doing what the world is doing and eventually the, the ways of the world are set and they're so set and the heart is so hardened that conversion does not reach them anymore. Okay? That's part of the free choice of man. And always remember the word of St. Augustine, the God who created you without you will not save you without you. Okay? So it was true in the 5th century when St. Augustine said it. It's still true today. So we have to be very realistic about the state of the world. Not to give up or to say, oh, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. No. But so that our prayer may be very targeted and very realistic. And we know what we're asking for. Okay? I'm just, uh, I was just listening to a uh, radio station, and they were talking about a particular magazine. I'm not going to say the name of this magazine, but this magazine, 30 years ago, was a hallmark of uh, degradation of women. Today, this magazine, so we're talking 40 years later, is the symbol of this magazine is now worn by college female students. 
the world gets set in a certain way of seeing things and they look at it as being appropriate and acceptable and comfortable and justifiable. And therefore, sets themselves up for those punishments that God had prepared in His covenant to keep us going in the right direction. We need to be realistic about what's out there so we realize when I'm praying, I need to pray in a very realistic way and and then implore God for His mercy and grace, but realize at the same time that when people make choices, they've made those choices. And I've told you last time about this conversation I had with this one person who was an atheist, declared atheist, and he told me, well, so am I going to hell? And I told him, well, I don't know if you're going to hell, because I'm not here to judge you, but I'm going to tell you this much. Let me ask you this question. If heaven is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and if heaven is Our Lady and the saints, and if heaven is the Mass, and if you're telling me you don't want any of this, what are you saying? I'm not telling you where you're going to go. You're making a choice. And God, who created you without you, will not save you without you. We make choices. And they are, and God is very serious about it. He takes our choices very, very seriously, much more than we do. Because He respects that free, free will that He gave us. God respects us far more than we respect Him. Did you realize that? God has more respect for us than we have for Him. So often I'll say something, and I look up and I say, I didn't mean it. Because He takes what I say far more seriously than I do. Now, in those two trumpets we're going to look at tonight, the sixth and the seventh. Thank you, Bowles. Stay where you are, right there. (laughs) I need somebody to keep on reminding me. So in those bowls, uh, we're going to see a couple of really interesting events that have led to much confusion. Let's read them. Uh, Beginning with verse 12 in chapter 16. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw issuing from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet three foul spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a great voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of thunder and a great earthquake, such as had never been since men were on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered great Babylon to make her drain the cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, heavy as a hundredweight, dropped on men from heaven, till men cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. All right, a couple of um, quick pointers. Number one, this is not about, one more time, this is not about the end of the world. Okay? 
if it was about the end of the world, if it was about the end of the world, then it would not end with great hailstones heavy as a hundredweight dropped on men from heaven till men cursed God for the plague of the hail, so, fear, for the, so fearful was that plague. It is not about um, the consummation of all ages. It is about the consummation of that particular judgment against a particular city, which is called Great Babylon. So we're converging on a city, and we have to deal with this in the next chapters. For now, let's look at the content of these two um, bowls. First, the sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. First of all, remember what I said last time, we have to protect ourselves from literalistic meaning. So when we read Great Babylon, we know God is not talking about the city of Babylon. Right? This is not about the city of Babylon. Therefore, when we read Euphrates, we should not assume that it is about the river Euphrates. Instead, we need to realize that behind the river Euphrates, there is something else going on. Why was the river Euphrates mentioned? In order to understand that, we have to go back and look for a momentous event mentioned in Scripture that has something to do with the river Euphrates. Is there such an event? See, always you go back not to pure imagery in modern terms, but rather you look in the Scripture for something that will help us understand the meaning behind this text. All right, a couple of quick notes. The woe of the sixth bowl is depicted according to the description of God's judgment of Babylon and Israel's restoration, itself patterned after the drying up of the Red Sea and at the Exodus. I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain that, but let me read it to you one more time. This woe is depicted according to the description of God's judgment of Babylon. Now, I'm talking about the real city, Babylon. And Israel's restoration itself patterned after the drying up of the Red Sea at the Exodus. The interesting thing is that there are Old Testament prophecies that the judgment of Babylon will imply, will include the drying up of the Euphrates River. And those are found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 15, 44, verse 27. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 38, 51, verse 36. And in the book of Zechariah, chapter 10, verse 11. In other words, the prophets, and, and you can go back to our series on, on Isaiah, and on, especially on Isaiah in this context, Ezekiel and Daniel don't cover it, and I have not done Jeremiah yet. The prophets had oracles against Babylon. Prophecies. So now you have to move back to about the year 504 and, on, 500 and before uh, B.C., right? Babylon is the great cosmopolitan city. It's the power that exists. It's the center of the world. And... It had, what, what did Babylon do in 587? Remember that event, 587 B.C.? The Babylonian army came down, 
destroyed Jerusalem and shipped the Jews in exile into Babylon. And while they were there, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the king, used the vessels from the temple into one of his party. And then a finger appeared on the wall and wrote things. And he didn't know what it was. And he called upon the prophet Daniel, who came and told him of his demise. So Daniel also told him, what is yours will be taken away from you. Isaiah had prophesied about the demise of Babylon as well. A hundred years before those events. And Isaiah, which is very interesting in this particular prophecy, Isaiah named Cyrus, the Persian king, by name. A hundred years before, when he said that Cyrus would overtake Babylon. Now, how did Cyrus do that? Cyrus declared war against Babylon. It'd be like Lithuania declaring war against the United States. Okay? I mean, there's no, there's no comparison there. So the Babylonians decided to feast before the war. They were so sure of themselves that they're going to win, that they decided to feast before. I mean, Babylon was a very, very impregnable city. Seven walls, two chariots on each wall. I mean, the, the works. How will this little army of Cyrus come and take Babylon? So they feasted. Unbeknownst to them, Cyrus had sent his engineers upstream, and they dammed the river Euphrates. The Euphrates flowed beneath the city. They dammed the city, and during that night, when the Babylonians were feasting, the Persian army walked right under the city and took the city without shedding blood. One night. Babylon fell. You understand now what the damming of the river Euphrates means? Drying up the Euphrates? That's what it means. It's not about the physical drying up of the river like some modern commentators are waiting for. They're waiting for somebody to go damn the Euphrates today, which makes absolutely no sense. And there are even some who will tell you that Babylon will be rebuilt. They're waiting for that. But, but it, maybe, I don't know what's going to happen in Babylon. I don't know what the real estate in Iraq these days are for, in the, in the area of Babylon. I've not checked it lately. But the, the point is, this is not what this is all about. Here, the damming of the Euphrates is like a flag. It's a key word. It's like 9-11. It just brings so many images. Right? So the damming of the river is a signal... Right? It's a signal that these armies are going to come and there's nothing to stop them. There's nothing to stop them. Nothing will be able to block their coming. Now, it's a little bit confusing. Why? Because in the prophecy of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah was about the good guys. Cyrus was, in that case, the good guy who's coming to actually take over the bad guys. But here, if you read the text carefully, it says, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Okay, from, for the, the way? For the kings from the east. So these kings are coming from the east. Right? 
So the sixth angel, watch out, watch out what's going on here. The sixth angel in heaven, in the liturgy, pours his bowl, a bowl of wrath, on the river Euphrates, and dries up the river, opening up the passageway to let the kings from the east cross. Right? So there are two notions, two images here. They're echoing each other. The first one is that of the overtaking of Babylon by Cyrus. The second is the Exodus, when God dried up, opened up the, the Red Sea to allow the Jews to cross. So both of those connote what? One connotes a city is going to fall. The other connotes salvation. Okay? Where it gets confusing is, and I saw issuing, so to prepare the way for the kings from the east, and then these dragons are sending these uh, foul spirits, and they assembled them. They assembled who? Who go abroad, abroad to the kings from the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So it sounds as if these kings coming from the east and the kings from the whole world are working with the bad guys, not the good guys. So why is this angel pouring his bowl over the river Euphrates, drying it up, allowing these kings from the east to cross, allowing all of these kings to be assembled into one battle? Because oftentimes, God, and we see it in pattern in Isaiah, God will use pagan nations to do His bidding. He's the one who brought the Babylonians to Jerusalem, and He's the one who allowed the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem and destroy it. Alright? So even though they are doing what they want to do, it is still God who is directing their action. As he told Isaiah. And as he told Ezekiel. Go back to the series on Ezekiel. And you will see it. Very, very clearly. I am the one who is bringing the book of Nosor here. He is my instrument. I am raising my hand through him. Now, here is the important thing. Historically speaking. You, you say that great Babylon is Rome. And none of those images make sense. None of those images make sense. Because Rome was not surrounded by enemies. No army crossed the Euphrates, the dried up Euphrates, even to mount a full attack against Rome and destroy Rome. Didn't happen back then. Okay? But we know historically that the Roman army came from the east, crossed the Euphrates, when they came to lay siege against Jerusalem. We also know, patterned from Isaiah, that Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the city that was destroyed. When you, when you put those two together, you begin to understand the pattern here. What, what, what is going on in Jerusalem at this moment? Right? It's a confused situation. You have the authority of the temple who are persecuting the Christians. Right? That led to the death of St. Stephen. That led to sending out Saul, persecuting all the Christians. And then those persecutions happened all over. Right? After Saul became St. Paul, he converted. 
There are Jews who promise they will not eat until they have him dead. They see him dead. So the persecution coming from the temple, you also have um, different groups of zealots who have become radicalized and who are now warring against each other. And then you have Jews who've converted, who became Christian. Okay? So, Jerusalem is the center of the Old Covenant. Right? It is the place where, it is the city of cities, because this is where God's covenant is present. How do we know that? Because of the sacrifice of the temple. This is where, this is the only place, Jerusalem is the only place in the whole world where someone can offer sacrifice to God. Nowhere else. Okay? Nowhere else can you offer sacrifice to God but in Jerusalem. In order for the old, for the new covenant to come through, the old has to go away. And Jesus would have preferred for that old covenant to go away peacefully, but they refused. And then he told them, Behold, your city, your house is left empty and desolate. Okay? The new covenant is going to happen by the, by, the, by the strength of the cross. Nothing will stop it. Just the way in which it's going to happen depends also on our, on our response. This is true today as it was back then. Okay? So, <clears throat> what is going on here is that after the economic upheaval that we saw right about, right before that, and that economic upheaval is directly linked to the events that concern St. John. It isn't about the entire world. This is not about an entire worldwide economic crisis. It is about the situation in which St. John finds himself. And historically, what happened was that when the Roman war with Israel started, all the economic routes were cut off from Jerusalem. Because that's what Rome, Rome saw to it, that you would not be able to bring anything into the city or take anything out of the city. Okay? <coughs> That was, that's what's happening, and in the sixth uh, bowl, we see the confirmation because the waters of the Euphrates are going to be dried up, and now the great Babylon, that is Jerusalem, which is now the city opposing the covenant, is about to be destroyed by pagan armies. That is what's going on here at one level. The interesting thing is the participation of the beast and the two, and, and the dragon and the two beasts. Each one of them put forth a demonic spirit. And those demonic spirits go throughout the world and convince them to take part into this event and then bring them up to this war that is going to happen in this place called Armageddon. So at this level, it isn't just about Jerusalem. It is greater. Now it starts to take um, a dimension that, is, that covers all of history. That event isn't just about Jerusalem. It is about the way in which the battle is going to be conducted between Jesus and the 144,000 that we saw previously and the dragon and the two beasts. The economic power, economic and political power that is under the control of the beast, and the religious power that is under the control of the beast. Right? 
that suggests this, that this battle will be ongoing all the way till the end of time, all the way through, will it reach its climatic end. In the Old Testament, God is always the one who dries up the water, whether for redemption or judgment. It's really interesting. No water dries up other than through God's power in the Old Testament. So the, the final defeat of the wicked forces stands no less under divine direction than do their prior attempts to destroy God's people. So the drying up the water is something that always happened under God's direct direction. Isaiah is a good example when he dried up the skies, he closed the sky, made the sky a sky of bronze where no water would fall for three and a half years, leading to, leading to a drought. So whenever the water dries up, we know that there is judgment coming through because this is the pattern we see throughout the Old Testament. Most commentators would say that Babylon represents the world system. So they generalize to the world economy today. I have... While I can see that in one sense you can apply that to... You can apply this image of Great Babylon to the world system. In the, on, the, on the other hand, I have a problem with it because it would be so alien to the thought process of St. John. There is no basis for it in, in, in Scripture whatsoever that Babylon ever rep- represented the world system of economy. What Babylon stood for is what Jericho stood for, what Sodom stood for, what Egypt stood for. What Cain stood for. This is the pattern we find in Scripture. Opposition to the covenant. Every time God raises a covenant, somebody comes and opposes the covenant. Started all the way with Adam and Eve. I always told you, Genesis is always in the background. Adam and Eve, the devil shows up. The one who opposes the covenant. Right? Then, right as the covenant Right as Adam and Eve leave the garden and the covenant is affirmed, we have, um, we have Abel opposed by Cain. Then you have Seth who replaces Abel and the two, the two civilizations move, flow through. The civilization of Cain and the civilization of Seth. And what happens towards the end? The daughters of men... I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the sons of men... Married the daughters of God. Meaning what? Meaning that the daughters in the line of Seth intermarried with the, the, the sons in the line of Cain. That's when God said there will be a flood. He brought judgment on all of them. And kept only a remnant, Noah and his family. And he reaffirmed the covenant with Noah. Right after the covenant is reaffirmed, Canaan, the grand uh, um, uh, Ham, uh, Noah's son, stands up as the opposer to the covenant. And we start again. And the Jews find themselves in Egypt, and Egypt is opposing the covenant. So Egypt is done away with. Notice, the flood, done away with. In Egypt, done away with. Sodom and Gomorrah, they're done away with. Jericho, they're done away with. So consistently, every time the covenant is reaffirmed and put in place... There is an enemy to the covenant, and God, through the covenantal blessing and curses, moves that opposition out of the way. Every single time. And it is through His direct, direct control, supervision, and command 
When Joshua went to Jericho to inspect the city, who did he see that? An angel. And he asked him, are you with us or against us? And he said, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Okay, so God commanded them and told them how you fight the war. Then Babylon stood up. And Babylon was used as a way to punish Jerusalem for their infidelity to the covenant. And you, you see, God has no, God is partial. There's no, uh, God is impartial. There's no partiality with God. Whether you are in the household of God or outside of the household of God, right, officially, if you are following the covenant, you'll be blessed. If you're not, you'll be cursed. Right? As simple as that. There's no, there's no partiality with God. So he uses Babylon to effectively uh, destroy Jerusalem. But then when Babylon stands as the obstacle to the reaffirmation of that covenant, what does he do? He does away with it. He brings Cyrus, and Cyrus will give the edict for the rebuilding of the temple. And on we go. Now, in, in a, during the time of St. John, what is the city that is opposing the covenant? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, not Rome. The opposition comes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become the obstacle to the establishment of the new covenant. So it has to be moved away. What happens to Rome? Rome is not destroyed. Rome is converted. Big difference. Right? So that's the pattern we see repeated here. And God will allow these demonic spirits to do what they have to do, and yet what they're doing is according to His plan. Is according to His plan. Which is surprising and shocking to us, because sometimes we think, well, Lord, why are you using these guys to punish us? I mean, after all, they're much, much worse than we are. And I don't think you you have to stretch the imagination too much today to... To know what, what guys I'm talking about. Right? How come you use these guys to go after us? We're persecuted, we're, we're small, we're dwindling. Why are you doing this? And the answer is in Scripture. Because they ask him that same question. The prophets asked the Lord, why are you sending the, the um, Assyrians after us? Those guys are brutal murderers. They'll just kill everybody. They're much worse than we are. Why are you? Okay. And God told them. Why? Yeah, I'll use them to punish you. And then I'll punish them for it. Yeah. So what is driving the whole thing from God's perspective? You read scripture from God's perspective, not man's perspective. All of history is driven by God's care for the covenant. Everything happens. Everything is arranged. Everything is structured. According to God's care for the covenant. And again, I say it one more time, it is therefore the liturgy, the heart of the covenant, that is making history, not history that is making liturgy. As we these days, and some right of the church, want to do. We're modern, we're better, so let's just change the liturgy. Let's introduce our own fashion in it, and the way we should celebrate it. Which is a mockery and a misunderstanding, and um, um, a paralysis of our power of prayer. 
Okay. <clears throat> now, there is an interjection here. Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. What is that doing in the middle of all of this? Lo, I am coming like a, uh, like, a, like a thief. Well, there are a couple of references in the New Testament. Those should be closer to you. The first one is the parable of the watching servant. Right? You do not know at what time I will come. So watch and pray. The second is to this very obscure event recorded in the Gospel of St. Mark. You know what I'm pointing to? You know what I'm referring to? In the Gospel of St. Mark, it is said that when Jesus was in the garden, Gethsemane, when the soldier came to capture him, there was with them a young lad, and when I tried to grab him, they grabbed his garment and he ran away naked. Okay? And because it's only mentioned in the Gospel of St. Mark, the thought is that the evangelist is speaking of himself. It's unproved, of course. We don't know that for sure. But there's this thought that this is something he added. St. Mark was the writing head of St. Peter. So you read the Gospel of St. Mark, you're reading the thought of St. Peter. That's why it's one of the Gospels that is harshest on the apostles. Because you, you see St. Peter talking. right? But that part is there about being naked. Now, nakedness is a really interesting uh, concept. So we go back to, of course, the book of Genesis. Why? It is indicated to us by keeping his garment that he may not he may not go naked and be seen exposed. So to be seen exposed naked induces what? A feeling of what? Shame. Shame right? So the, the, the opposite of this is that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they felt no shame. So here it's the opposite experiment, is that somebody is going to be seen naked and he will be exposed. Now, what I am coming like a thief. The Lord said that again elsewhere in the Gospels. I'm coming like a thief. Why is he saying that he's coming like a thief? Okay. What, is he, what does a thief do? Steals, right? So, what is the intent here? What is the intent? The intent is that this thief is coming to take something and this thief is coming at an hour we do not expect right so far so good blessed is he who is awake okay you'd think blessed is he who is awake so that he can do what so he can stop the thief right so I'm coming like a thief blessed is he who is awake you're awake, you're guarding your house, the thief comes, you can stop the thief. But that's not how it goes. Blessed, blessed, it's a blessing, right? Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments. Do you see the incongruity now? That doesn't make sense. Keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. Okay, what is the first implication? When he says, he may not go naked. What is the implication? 
The implication is, he's going to go. Okay? The implication is, he's going to go. This is somebody who managed to keep his garment and went with it. So this person went what? Slowly? Gently? Carefully? Is that the, the impression you get? No. This is somebody who ran away. Right? So what is the blessing? The blessing is, blessed are you if you run away and you keep your clothes. Let's read it one more time, because it, it is surprising. Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments, that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. He may not go naked and be seen exposed. So, when is this exhortation happening? Right after what? What just happened before this exhortation? The three frogs that the monk experienced were just sent away. Right? And their purpose is to do what? To deceive the kings of the world. And then the Lord tells us, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed are you if you're awake. Meaning what? Remember what I told you how Babylon was, how Babylon fell? They were celebrating and I got drunk. They were not watching and they were not awake. And Cyrus entered the city like a thief. So the notion of a thief here doesn't necessarily include just one guy. It just includes the notion of stealth. I'm coming through and you will not see me. I'll be in the middle of the midst of you and you won't realize that I'm there. And it doesn't mean that the Lord spiritually is going to be in our midst. That's not what he's talking about when he says, I am coming like a thief. He doesn't mean that he's coming to inspect us spiritually. For that, he doesn't have to come or go, for that matter. This is not as spiritual as in, i.e., immaterial coming. He's talking about a physical coming. He's coming in these armies. He's coming in these soldiers. And his coming is going to be like a thief. It's going to be sudden. And blessed are you, you're awake, because then your nakedness will not be exposed. Okay? So it's a call for watchfulness. It's a call to be guarded. It's a call to pray so you're not deceived. And it's a call to be prudent about how you interact with the world. That's what this blessing is about. And they assembled them at the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. Uh, before I go there, I just wanted to point out to you a couple of references. To see one's nakedness is related to shame and to idolatry. Shame and idolatry. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 36, and Ezekiel 23, 29, and um, Isaiah chapter 20, verse 4. And also in the book of Nahum, chapter 3, verse 5. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 36 through 39, we see that, I, this is one of the most, the closest text that is, that is important to us here. We see that because of the idolatry that had made Israel a harlot, her shame will be exposed. And in the same text, 
in 1636 to 39, Ezekiel tells Israel that God will gather the nations around her roundabout, meaning they will lay siege against her. And the nations in this case meant the Babylonians. All right? So when God gathers the nations, it does not mean he's gathering, you know, the Chinese and the Korean and the, 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 the people of, the, uh, of Cameroon and all of Africa. The nations mean those who are not believers. All right? The word nations always indicated those who were not part of Israel, the Gentile nations. So when he says, I'll gather the nations, it doesn't mean that those angels or those spirits are going throughout the world to gather all those nations from everywhere in the world and bring them over there. It simply means I'm going to go get, get those Gentiles who are non-believers and I'm bring them to you and they will do my bidding. I will also give you one more reference is, uh, which we have studied in the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 18. In chapter 3, verse 18, in the, letter to the, in the letter to the Laodiceans, the Lord told them, Therefore I counsel you to buy from me white garments, to clothe you, to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. And if you go back to that chapter, which you studied extensively, you'll see that the same references is made. So the notion is, don't fall into idolatry, don't fall into harlotry, stay Put in your faith, persevere, and stand firm, because I am coming. So when you see these soldiers coming through, it is me coming. All right. Now, Armageddon. How many of you have heard the word Armageddon? All right. What, what does it suggest? Armageddon. Thank you. The big battle, right? The big battle, right? The battle of all battles, right? All right. Armageddon is a Hebrew word that in Hebrew would be, would be pronounced Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Har in Hebrew means mountain. Mountain, mountain. So Armageddon literally means the mountain of Megiddo. All right? So far, so good? Now, here's the problem. We have a problem. Uh, um, well, we have the plain of Megiddo. They're below sea level. And there ain't a mountain anywhere. It's a problem. There's the plain, but there's no mountain. Now there's Mount Carmel. There's Mount Carmel that is not too far. Now Mount Carmel is important, right? We'll see why in a minute. But there is no such thing as the mountain of Megiddo. And then besides, how do you assemble all the armies of the world on top of a mountain? You understand the problem? Typically, wars are never fought on top of a mountain for obvious reasons. There isn't enough space. They're fought in planes. So why did he say Armageddon? 
Har Megiddo. Why did he say that? So obviously the first thing we realize is what? This is not a real place. One more time. Okay? So all these folks out there who are watching these movies, reading these books, and preparing for the final war between Israel and China and Russia, and right? They're out there somewhere. But they're not in Scripture. Because we have a little problem. There is no such thing as the mountain of Megiddo. You can go look for it. And if you find it, let me know. But last account, you can't see it. Doesn't, it's not there. So again, we have to go back to the Old Testament to help us understand what this is pointing to. In the book of Judges, chapter 5, verse 19 and 21, the river Kishon is sometimes called the waters of Megiddo because of its proximity to the plain of Megiddo. There is this river, Kishon, that flows in proximity of the plain of Megiddo, and it's sometimes called the waters of Megiddo because it's close to it. So, one might think, therefore, that Mount Carmel, which is, which is in proximity to the plain of Megiddo, may be what St. John has in mind. That's a possibility, and it's a good one. The only problem that we may have with it is there is no backing, there is no prior case for Mount Carmel to be called Mount Megiddo in the Old Testament. Keep that in mind for a second. Now, what is important in Megiddo? Megiddo is very important because King Josiah, King Josiah was a righteous king. But at one point, he disobeyed God's orders. And he decided to go and to fight the Egyptians. And that battle took place in the plains of Megiddo, and he got killed. It's a huge deal for Israel. It's a huge deal because he was a righteous king fighting the evil one, and he got killed. Right? You can read about this in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 35, verse 20 through 25. So, Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo, became the sign of Israel's crushing defeat. Right? It became the sign of Israel's crushing defeat. Which again brings us back to Jerusalem. See, Rome is really... It's really hard to put Rome in the picture with all these Old Testament references pointing all in one direction. All the clues point to Jerusalem when you study the text and you look at it in its Old Testament context to understand the terms. It's very tough to make it point to Rome. All right? It became a sign of, of, of Israel's crushing defeat. When was it? Um... It was around the th- uh, probably 400 to 300 BC, maybe a little bit earlier. And so Megiddo is where righteous Israel was attacked by wicked nations. I gave you the references in the book of uh, Chronicles, but you can find it also in the book of Judges, chapter 5, verse 19, the second book of Kings, chapter 23, verse 29. So we get the defeat of kings who oppress God's people. 
we get the defeat of kings who oppress God's people in book of Judge, chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. The destruction of false prophets in the first book of Kings, chapter 18, verse 40. And the death of misled kings, which led to mournings. Okay. I, what I mentioned to you here is the context in which Megiddo appears beyond that crushing defeat. It also appears in the context of the defeat of kings who oppress God's people and the destruction of false prophets. So it's a place where those who oppress God's people are defeated, false prophets are crushed, and Israel, and Israel is defeated. Put the three together and think about the context under, during the time of St. John. Israel is now the force that is oppressing God's people. Israel has the false prophets, as Jesus told them. Many false prophets will come, right? And Israel is going to suffer a crushing defeat in 70 AD. Okay? So that's about the plain. But what about the mount? Mount Megiddo. Where's that mount? Now, you have the answer. It's not that difficult. If you string the pieces of the book of Revelation together, think, when was the last time that we saw the Lord prior to those events? Where was He? A couple of chapters ago. He was on Mount Zion, precisely. What a coincidence. The Lord and the 144,000 who is going to effect victory is on Mount Zion. A mountain denotes what? God's presence, God's power, God's glory. Right? Who's the king of Israel? Who's the one that is effectively the true king of Israel? As Pilate said. Okay? So, Mount Megiddo then becomes that Mount Zion on which the Lord and 144,000 are present from which the defeat is going to come. So it's a combined image taken from the past of Israel and from the liturgical background we have in the book that speaks of this Armageddon where through the liturgy and the prayers of the saints God is going to use these ungodly nations to bring about His new covenant in this War of the wars. You need to let the book lead you and not force feed the book into thoughts that are modern but are completely outside the context. That is the most natural explanation of Armageddon that doesn't require us to go through much gymnastics. It just allows us to follow how St. John combines images and uses specific terms that are charged with Old Testament background to bring about the meaning of what he's trying to say. Because that's also the image he's seeing. If you think about it, he just saw this image, this vision of God on Mount Zion, and now he sees on the plain all these forces. Okay? This image has not gone away. Because we moved, we moved away from it, it doesn't mean that God in 144,000 just disappeared. Okay, that, that, the problem we have is that we take his, his vision sequentially. We split it into pieces and we forget what's before and what's after. And we get then into 
Greek grammar. Trying to make sense out of it. Now, again, verse 17. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and a great voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Where did we hear this before? Ah. Jesus said it is done on the cross. Right? And what, what, this, what did this it is done mean to all of us? It's the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is finished. What does it mean to us? It just started. Right? Same thing here. It is done. It is not yet done. It hasn't happened yet. But in heaven it happened. And I told you often that liturgy makes history. This is how. It is done. Liturgically it is set. Now it's going to follow its course in history. Okay? And as a result of this it is done, we have the same events that happened at the cross. Flashes of thunder, great earthquake. Huh. What happened at the cross? Thunder and earthquake. What happened in the city of Jerusalem? Yeah. Yeah. The curtain was rent. By the way, the curtain. You, you, those of you who were with us for the temple, remember that part. The curtain. The word is so wrong. Because typically a curtain is what? It's just, you know, it's a bit piece of cloth, right? You just, you know, all right. Curtain, right? 30 feet wide, 70 feet high. That's the curtain. 30 feet wide, 70 feet high. That's why St. Matthew says it was rent from top to bottom, meaning no human being rented. rented. Okay? And what did it reveal? It revealed the Holy of Holies, which no one has ever seen before. Right? Huh. Interesting coincidence that the same sequence happens here. It is done, earthquake, and the city, the great city. What city? Commentators say, well, of course it's Rome. How did you go to Rome? How did you bring Rome in the picture? And the great city was split into three parts. All right, what is this business of splitting the city in three parts? Well, again, this comes to us from the book of Isaiah. So let me back up for a second. The, the usual imagery, lightning, flashes of thunder, great earthquake, by now you should be used to it. This is covenantal judgment. We've seen it over and over again. It's based on Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 through 18, which describes the Sinai theophany. God coming down to do what? To give them the Ten Commandments, which are what? The heart of the covenant. The wordings in this verse, verse 17, are taken from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 18, I'm sorry. At that hour, such tribulation as has not come about since a nation has come about on the earth until that time. And Daniel is describing the tribulation at the end of the age when God will deliver his people. And when Daniel is talking about, if you remember our study of the book of Daniel, it isn't about the end of the world. It is about the end of the age, the end of the old covenant. Okay? And then we see this deconstruction, verse 20 and 21. And every island fled away and no mountain were to be found. That is deconstructive language to say this world is passing. Right? Why? Because the city and the temple represent the cosmos. When the temple and the city are destroyed, the cosmos is as well. And we have a new creation. We have a new creation. And 
the, the, this business of the city being split in three can be explained in two ways. The first one is that in Isaiah, I, God commanded Isaiah to take his hair and split it into three parts, representing the city of Jerusalem and the inhabitants. One-third to be thrown into the fire, one-third to be trampled underfoot, and one-third to be destroyed in a third way. So it indicates the ways in which people in the city are going to die. Also, it could indicate, according to Carrington, that Josephus, as I mentioned to the historian, describes um, how the city was actually split during the siege of Jerusalem. The city was split between three warring factions. Three warring factions killing each other. In fact, the city of Jerusalem did not fall under the Roman push. It fell because the infighting inside of it. Three different groups of zealots fighting each other constantly. Remember, earthquake doesn't, again, physically, is not necessarily an earthquake, but it indicates what? Destabilization. Breaking up of power, of stability. That which is stable is no more. It doesn't necessarily mean an actual physical earthquake. It can mean that, but not necessarily. And then at the end of this, we have this image now that is focused on hailstones. Heavy as a hundredweight dropped on men from heaven till men curse God for the plague of the hail. Um, hail that is that large, when coupled with earthquake, destroys the defenses of a city. Each hail weighs a talent, right? Which is about 45 to 130 pounds. Pretty big hail, if you ask me. So the idea here is what? It's the destructive power of this plague. Nothing will stay. Nothing will stand. Now don't take it from me. Take it from the Lord himself. Remember, leaving with the apostles? What did they tell him when they showed him the temple? What did Jesus say? Amen, amen, I say to you, a time is coming where not one stone will remain on top of the other. So that's what's indicated here. Interestingly, Josephus describes the Roman catapulting burning stones into the city. Each stone weighed about a talent, 45 to 130 pounds. And the Jews would ironically call those stones, would say, the sun is coming. Apparently they knew of these Christian prophecies and they were making fun of it. Okay, I am not going to dwell too much on the war with the Jews. There is a whole section of studies that is consecrated on what we call the preterist, preterist reading, which is the reading the events of the book of Revelation as past prophecy that concerns themselves only with the city of Jerusalem. I, it is not my intent or interest to just focus on that, because I think that the liturgical aspect is the key aspect of the book and shows us how through all of history and down the ages, God is dealing with us and he's loving us, he's showing us his mercy, and he's punishing us, and then showing his wrath to the world through the liturgy. That's far more important to us than to concentrate on the, on the city of Jerusalem. I only use elements from it when it highlights the meaning hidden behind the text. But I, I'm not interested in dwelling too much on those events. There's just one case in history where God showed the exercise of the covenant. But there are many more down the ages that have nothing to do with the Jews or with the Romans. Okay? 
And then as a result of this, what happened? For the third time, men cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. They cursed God for the plague of the hail. They knew that God was responsible for the plague. And as a result, did what? Cursed him. You, gotta, you, you need to contend, we need to contend with the mystery of iniquity, which is sin. Why did Adam and Eve, who were perfect, sin? Why did Lucifer, who was one of the most beautiful angels, sin? What provokes us to sin? It's a reality that is as true today as it was at the dawn of the age. It is a reality that confronts all of us, personally and nationally. And that is when we need to realize, really realize and, and be awed by the liturgy. Because if you, were, if you try to imagine the world without the liturgy, as bad as the world is today, as bad as the world is today, try to imagine the world without the Mass. Try to imagine the world without the Mass. And we are called to celebrate the Mass. I mean, if you really think about it, and if it doesn't bring tears to your eyes, I don't know what will. That's what He died for. That's His gift. Everlasting gift to all of us. And so, tonight, what are you doing with this gift? What will you do with this gift? And I recommend that you ask Padre Pio to really instill in your heart a love, an abiding love for the Mass. Because it is the road to happiness. It goes through this altar and all the altars of the church in the world. God bless you. We have some time for questions. Yes. He doesn't reestablish another covenant. The covenant is established once and forever. The church is established for eternity. Those are given. We have won. Right? Yeah. We're not going to get wiped out. That's the whole point. Well, we're going to die out. We the church will never get wiped out. Right? There will only be a few people left in the church. See, it's not about a few or a lot. At the end of the day, what matters is, for you and for me, what matters is what happens when we stand before our personal judgment. Now, it's his church. If he wants a few, it's his business, not mine. But couldn't he make a new covenant with the Muslims? The, there is no new covenant. The covenant is made in the blood of Jesus Christ. Instead of speaking of making a new covenant with the Muslims, we speak of conversion, bringing them into the church. Right? And therefore we, we, as we practice the virtue of hope, faith, and charity, pray for their conversion. And we pray meaning it, not pray for their conversion sort of because we have to. We pray because we believe they can be converted. Right? And I would recommend you listen to the talk. You can go to the website on corbono.com and get the talk on Our Lady of Guadalupe. And if you think that the conversion of Muslims is a hard task, listen to this talk to find out what miracle it was for people of South America to convert. Yes. Where there's Our Lady, there's hope. Any other question? Yes. 
Um, what I, yeah, this is something that I've covered extensively before we're getting to the seven hills, which is, of course, Rome. The key is, who is that harlot sitting on the seven hills? They say Rome sitting on Rome, which is really, really interesting ideas. I don't think so, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to that point. Uh, what I would like to say is that from an interpretive principle, I try to follow always the same approach. What is the basis for those images that St. John is seeing? And obviously, the basis are, is the Old Testament. So we go to the Old Testament, and we let the Old Testament help us understand what's behind those images. And in a consistent, logical fashion, it has been, it, it has been pointing to Jerusalem first and foremost, not to Rome. Rome is secondary. It is present. And it is, for instance, last week we spoke of Rome as being the beast from the sea. It is Rome, no doubt. Rome is the political power. Rome is persecuting Christians, yes. But it's, it's at the instigation of the Jews, right? There are, there are extensive historical data to show that the, that the persecution of Nero against the Christians was due to the jealousy of the Jews. Okay? And then once he realized that, he turned around and he effectively enacted a far worse persecution against the Jews, which is inexplicable otherwise. Right? So um, it's the, it's the uh, connection between Jerusalem and Rome. Remember the, the authority of the temple telling Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Right? So there is definitely duplicity on both sides in persecuting the Christian. So the religious, the second beast, the beast from the land, and the beast from the sea, both coming together under the dragon to persecute the Christians. But to say that it's all about Rome is effectively skewing the text and moving away from the Old Testament. And I don't find it... I'm not trying to push an agenda here. I'm just letting the text lead me. All right? I don't find it logical. I've never been satisfied with it. Right? There are some good elements in looking at Rome, definitely. There's some ideas and insight. But overall, it just does not fit in a logical, consistent way based on a small set of principles for interpretation. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.